Today's scripture reading is from Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, this morning we have a marvelous passage before us and some incredible timing for that passage. And I just want to be very, very clear uh, about who is marvelous here. Uh, we didn't plan this. Uh, we, the little bit of planning that Joel and I did in coming up to today's passage was toward Easter, that next week we'll consider the resurrection and a question that's brought to Jesus. And we did not do the math that we would be preaching on taxes the week of April 15th. Now, if I'm honest about my own household, I also didn't do the math that I need to do taxes at some point during the course of this week, and it's Easter week. So uh, God is great. God is marvelous. Uh, This preacher isn't. So uh, we're in the middle of an incredible series uh, in the book of Mark, and um, what's incredible about it is the gospel, the gospel that the Spirit has has recorded for us. And, and, and it's marvelous, hasn't it been, to watch the crafting of the Spirit, not only the words of Jesus, but the crafting of the Spirit of a book that records these things for us in a particular way. Two weeks ago, we saw the authority of Jesus was challenged by a group of leaders in Jerusalem, a group of leaders called the Sanhedrin. They asked this question back in Mark Chapter 11, verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you this authority to do them? That is, by what authority was Jesus rebuking the establishment, teaching the people in the temple? What authority is he doing these things? Last week we saw Jesus confront the members of the Sanhedrin, and he confronted them with the fact that they were rejecting presently, in this very moment, uh, in the temple, in confronting his authority, they were rejecting the true authority of the Lord, just like they had rejected the authority of the prophets who came before him, all the way through John the Baptist. Now, in three passages, beginning today, and then in the next two weeks, we're going to look at three groups who make up the Sanhedrin. We're going to look at the Pharisees today, along with the Rhodians. We're going to look at the Pharisees, and then the Sadducees, and then the scribes, and they're going to come in and confront Jesus and offer specific challenges to him. Now, the point of the passage this morning deals with an important point. It deals with taxes. Um, Some of you just wish that you were just on track with reading ahead so you would know to not be here today. All right? But here we are, we are here, and we're going to deal with what Jesus deals with this morning. It deals with taxes and what some would call government overreach, and what others would call the responsibility of the believer to respect those in authority, right? We'll see that there is a trap in this question. There's even a trap in how I would frame 
the question, right? There's a trap between these two perspectives, this idea of government overreach and responsibility to respect those in authority. We're dealing with this passage with a crucial uh, question of the right of government to exercise authority over people who owe their allegiance to God. How can you respect an authority when your allegiance belongs to the Lord? It's interesting that this message, of course, comes on this week of April 15th and tax day. How kind that the Lord is to give us this reflection, to, to sit here in the wisdom of Jesus this week. I know my own heart needs it. But all that said, taxes, authority, government are actually not the main role of this passage in Mark. Now, it would be if we sort of just dropped in there and tried to do a topical sermon. And then we would open up Romans, and we would open up other scriptures that speak of just authority. But let's remember the context. The main role of this passage, as well as the other passages that surround it, particularly the two passages that come after it, are a continued effort of the gospel writer Mark to hold out before us the true answer to the question of this section in the gospel. By what authority does Jesus do these things? The question is not, what is the nature of the authority of government? The real question for us today is what is the nature of the authority of Jesus? Okay? Let's not get distracted by things we like to write articles about and read articles about and whine about. And miss the question for our souls, what is the authority of Jesus over me, over us, over all of it? We're going to see Jesus repeatedly demonstrate by the exercise of his wisdom, particularly in these three passages, his authority comes from heaven. Heavenly Father, we are so distracted by so many things. We ask you, Lord, to give us ears to hear. Sit us down for a moment pray, Lord, that you would speak by your word, that the authority would come from your own words here recorded for us by the Spirit, preserved for us to this day, and that we would not only hear, but you would give us the gift of faith that we would respond with thanksgiving, trust, obedience, wisdom moment by moment for how to apply what you would place us under, your authority your word this morning. Lord, we trust you to do this in the midst of this congregation today. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, the authority of heaven. Amen. Let's look at the passage closely together, and if you look at it with me, you'll see it begins in verse 13. It says, they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians, and their business was to track him in his talk. They sent, there's the they The they, in the context, is the Sanhedrin, sort of the ruling body in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. And today, a particular group from among them are sent by the Sanhedrin with a particular question with the purpose of trapping Jesus. So let's look at these parties, and specifically the parties that are named, and one that isn't named, oh, but make no mistake, they were there, okay? 
We're going to look at the Pharisees first. The, the Pharisees uh, are a, a long-standing, pious reform movement within Jerusalem, really growing out of other reform movements that were necessary, really even all the way back to the exile and a need to see a reform in the home and, and the home paying attention to the Word of God and being called to repentance and to, to, to a, an appropriate following of the law of God in their homes and their towns and their villages and in the whole of the nation. I think the Pharisees get a, a bad rap often. They're, they're easy to beat up. I even hear people talking about what the Pharisees did when it wasn't even the Pharisees, like it was actually the Sadducees, which is actually a different group of people. But we just like to throw out the word Pharisees as if they were just the bad guys, right? One of the things I would encourage us to today is honestly, I think if I was to identify with anyone, if I was to guess who I would probably be, what my nature, myself is most like, it's probably the Pharisees, all right? I I probably need to identify in this passage right there. Their center of authority, the Pharisees, was in the towns and the villages and then the homes of the people. I don't think it's a stretch, though it, 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 okay, it's not too much of a stretch, To compare the Pharisees' power base as something like an American heartland with maybe even a bit of a fundamentalistic bent. And all of a sudden you see, right, I might identify there a a little bit. I'm a Hoosier, right, a flyover state. And and, and politically, they're anti-Herod, anti-Rome, anti-establishment, okay? Religiously, they're on the opposite end of the spectrum of, from the Sadducees, okay? This is the Pharisees. Now, what's fascinating is the group that's with them, the Herodians. Let's first say that it's interesting to find the Herodians with the Pharisees. Actually, this is the second time in Mark. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, they were together as well. The Herodians were not specifically one of the parties who held power in Sanhedrin, and there's a reason why. Herod didn't have any authority in that region of the whole area of Israel. Herod's authority was north of Jerusalem. They didn't hold any power here, but they're probably here, probably as a group who sort of held power within the other groups of the Sanhedrin. Maybe Herodian sympathizers or allies. Politically, they're Herodians, so they're pro-Herod, pro-King Herod, pro his authority and reign in the region where he reigns, just north in Galilee. And in and, and that, and that region, politically, they're pro-Herod, but they're also pro-Rome. I mean, Herod's kind of kind of working with Rome, all right, as sort of an, an, an under-governor. So you're listening to this, and you're like, isn't that the opposite of what you just said the Pharisees are? Yeah. So it's interesting that we find that while Herod has no authority in Jerusalem, evidently Herodians have worked their way into a power base here in Jerusalem, and they've made allies with the Pharisees, all with the effort to see to the demise of Jesus. Now, you'll recall that it was King Herod himself who killed John the Baptist. We shouldn't be surprised to find the Herodians also trying to come to kill the one whom John the Baptist had said would come after him. It's worth noting also that there is a third party who's definitely here, a mostly underground movement at this point called the Zealots. 
These were also anti-Herod people. These are also anti-Rome, like particularly. It's almost like why they exist, anti-Rome. But they were also militant. So don't think of them as the Pharisees. They were a militant anti-Herod, anti-Rome movement. The emphasis of the Pharisees was upon sort of a religious reform, and the zealots pressed for a political and militant action to expel Rome. Surely there were at least some zealot sympathizers mixed into all of these groups. Certainly they had sympathizers in the crowd on that day. And I think the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sanhedrin knew it. And so they asked this most difficult question for Jesus to answer, given the political climate that's present in overflowing Jerusalem on this festival week. Ultimately, it is that group, the zealots, who would instigate an uprising that would result in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So this is a a real political reality. Now, one of the things is I just said a bunch of things that I've kind of studied along the way, but I, I don't claim to be in any way an authority on these things, all right? I've gone and I've checked my research and I've done my best on it, but I would commission you These are things that, by and large, we aren't familiar with. Find a good book to read. Ask someone who has studied these things. And let's go a little bit further to understand the climate into which these teachings of Jesus come. Because they aren't dropped into 2022 United States of America. But that's where they find us today. But we're going to find how to really understand how to apply the words of Jesus in the context into which he spoke. I think one of the most important things that we can do this morning is recognize that Jesus is not addressing the federal tax code of the United States of America. In fact, Jesus did not come into Jerusalem to address taxes at all. This is not Jesus' great teaching on taxes. He was asked a question. And he gives a good answer in the middle of a trap. We've seen that before. We're going to see it a few more times. This is is not Jesus' great treatise to unpack everything that there is to be said about government overreach and responsibility to the authorities. We find that unpacked for us later in the scriptures. But really what we have this morning is the authority and wisdom of Jesus to stand up and proclaim the truth to a people who were actively denying him and seeking to trap him. We ought to recognize that even today, similar group and sympathies tend to manifest themselves in the church. Sure, the names of the parties change, the ideologies change a bit over time, but the basic ideas tend to work their way into every society. And we might find some of ourselves in these things. This is a challenge for each one of us today, that no matter what our religious or our political bent is, whatever we tend to today, whether you're thinking, I think the Pharisees were onto something. No, I think the zealots, go get them. I don't know. I think you kind of got to work with it. I'm more of a Herodian. No matter where you find yourself leaning today, are you willing to be confronted by the authority of Jesus? That is what you are being confronted with. Are we willing to hear him out? And ultimately, are we willing to marvel at his wisdom and submit to his authority in the church? I 
pray that that's what the Lord would do today. We're going to do that by walking through the passage. And it really has four sections in it. It has a trap and a question. And then it has a coin and an answer. Let's look at the trap. Here we are, right here, still in verse 13. They sent to him the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in his talk. We, here we have the Herodians and Pharisees together. It would seem that the only thing that could make allies out of those two groups of people was opposition to Jesus. We saw it way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus. How to destroy him. So that means, really, the Gospel of Mark is framed by the parentheses of an effort of the Pharisees and the Herodians to destroy Jesus. They already got John. They aren't entering into a real conversation with him on this day. They're they're never really listening to him. The only thing that they seem to really hear from Jesus is a challenge to their own authority and worldview. If If you're here and you're skeptical, then when you hear the word preached, when you hear the word read, When you hear Jesus held out and you hear his words, what you hear is a challenge to your worldview. I hope that one thing for you, that that you won't simply approach Jesus as a philosophy or a worldview to be destroyed. Hope you'll actually hear him. Hope you'll actually sit down and, and, and listen. I didn't say that you have to agree with him. I'm asking you to listen to him. I would ask that you would genuinely interact with his claims. Don't try to trap him in your mind. Write down your questions. But don't try to trap him. Like the Father in heaven said of Jesus earlier in Mark, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. At least give a listen. That's not what they're doing here. They're trying to trap him. Normally the word trap that's there is used uh, of setting a trap for animals to be devoured. All right? This isn't a nice little trick. They're literally trying to not just jab a little debate point home and win some points with the crowd. Their purpose is to destroy Jesus. And the purpose of the question is not to listen and learn from the wisdom of Jesus, but to literally hunt him down, which makes their flattery in the next verses all the more poignant. Look at it with me. Verse 14. Here we are all the way to the second verse of our passage. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. Dripping, right? You're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And then their question comes. What's fascinating is spot on. Nailed it. The the one thing that the Herodians and the Pharisees got together and did is offer a wonderful introduction to Jesus. Now, will you please, Jesus, teach us? They nailed it. He is a teacher. He is true. And he's not swayed by the opinions of man. Why? Well, because his authority comes down from heaven. Like he told you that earlier, the last time you tried to trap him. They nailed it. Uh, These flatteries are exactly the opposite, though, of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and really almost everyone who has come to Jesus in this sort 
of way. The whole of the Sanhedrin certainly have proven themselves to be those who have no interest in genuinely teaching the people. They seem to have a far greater interest in consolidating their power and manipulating the people. We've seen them repeatedly make specific decisions, like specific moments in which their decisions and their statements are not an effort to express or even consider truth and reality, but solely out of a concern for how their response would make them look in front of all the people who were watching them. Just a few verses ago, in the same section of Mark, in chapter 11, verse 22, they hold counsel together and they literally say, what shall we say? Well, the truth. An open statement of the truth, a consideration of reality, a reflection on the word of God, right? What shall we say? From man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. What's their consideration? What will the people think? What are the words that come out of their mouth? Whatever is politically expedient at the moment. You see that. Their words don't have the shape of truth. And more importantly, their words don't have the authority of heaven. Their words simply carry the authority of the fear of man. Why? Because their authority isn't from heaven. Because their authority is from man, as pious as the Pharisees tried to present themselves. And whatever element of of piety that is in their teaching, it's in these moments that they show themselves to be more, little more than another political movement. Their primary concern being the things of man. Friends, again, pile on, right? Pile on. But that's not unfamiliar to us today. Us. Not people who are kind of like us, but not really us. Us. What begins as a religious reform movement gains some popularity among the people And then it morphs a little more to be little more than a a political party. And it sees from that moment on that its existence owes itself to pleasing its constituents. When, When a preacher preaches and one of the key questions that he has in his mind is how is this going to land? Now, if you love somebody, you care about how it's going to land. And it may shape the, the expression, but it won't shape the reality. It won't shape the truth. At that moment, what began as reform has become simply the authority of man and the fear of man. Our concern at every moment must always be the authority of heaven. Our, our concern needs to be the truth of the Lord and the application of that truth applied with wisdom and faith that honestly, even as we're saying it, we need to confess I don't have. There's one person in the whole book that keeps marveling people. It's Jesus. He is the one with wisdom. And our question is, Lord, we've heard the truth. We've heard your open statement of the truth. Teach us how to to walk with wisdom, with a little bit of an increase in humility, and a great deal more faith and repentance as we proclaim the truth with boldness. Genuine faith listens to Jesus. Three words. Genuine faith is never popular 
or populist or a political movement. Our appeal is not to common sense. We don't follow a common sense religion. We follow an upside down nature religion where it's the servants who are great. And we don't appeal to common man. If we can just win the hearts of the heartland, go back to our roots. And we don't appeal to popular cultural sentiment or any elites. Our appeal together as the church of the Lord must always be. This is our appeal. Lord, speak to us by your word. Do you see the difference? One is an appeal by means of a statement to please another. The other is, Lord God, we will only be pleased if we hear you. Our appeal is to the Lord, a singular authority. When we speak the truth, our audience is the Lord. Are you pleased by this open statement, Lord? Are you pleased with the, with the application of this statement with wisdom? Do you see your people loving those to whom we proclaim? So here's the question. Here we are. Verse 14 in the second half of it. Pharisees, Herodians, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? Go. True or false? Right? Let's talk about the poll tax. All right, here we are. Census AD 60. Every man and woman were accounted for in the census. They were registered as those who were responsible to pay the tax each year that followed the census. Why take a census except for to know how much money you're going to get from the people, right? Well, the census itself was an affront. This tax is a particular point of contention between the Jewish people and the Romans who were exercising authority over them. It's as though their value in the world by the census was reduced to a simple coin. Why do you exist? What do you count for? You count for one denarius. When they knew themselves not to be merely a source of income for a foreign power, they knew themselves to be a chosen people of God out of all of creation. Not just a coin for foreign agents. In many ways, this tax gets at the root issues that repeatedly become uprisings and rebellions throughout this century of history into which Jesus steps at his birth. More than an issue of what was popularly considered an unjust tax of roughly a day's wage. This is more of an issue with the coin itself. The coin is a denarius. It's a Roman silver coin. The coin has the image of the emperor on it. And in having the image of the emperor on the coin, it's a breach of the second commandment, which bans the graven images, right? Particularly the images of a man, essentially an idol. The most religiously conscientious Jews would avoid transacting business with this coin to the point that they were permitted to mint an alternative coin, not a bitcoin, a copper coin in this particular case, and that coin didn't have any graven images on it, and they would transact their everyday business with that coin. But the actual tax, according to law, had to be paid exclusively with this coin-shaped, 
like a silver idol. Again, I see so much of ourselves here. I see ourselves in in the multi-layered hypocrisy that's taking place in their question, in this passage. How often do we whine and we complain about this thing or that thing, about those who are governing us, especially about taxes and government overreach into what ought to be our religious liberties. True. It's true. I don't have a problem with that statement. Here's the problem. The reality of our hearts is that we simply just don't want to pay. The reality of our hearts is just like everybody else. We don't like having people have authority over us. And we rise up in pride. Is it possible that some of the times when we make religious arguments, some of the times when we posit religious exemptions, if we could clearly clearly see our own hearts, we would see pride there, maybe greed there. Here's the most difficult thing here. When we're actually right, We're actually right in our religious argument. Like, it's true. And even what seems to be demanded out of that truth is true. But our hearts are all twisted up inside with hypocrisy and pride. You see, we can be right and deeply, deeply wrong. Honestly, I think that Jesus, especially if you look at much of the Sermon on the Mount and his other teachers, teachings. He agreed with the Pharisees almost point for point. He's a rabbi. The issue was hypocrisy. Honestly, I think the the Pharisees have a point about the coin. They know they aren't supposed to carry around idols, and yet the Romans have specifically cast an idol and then forced them to carry the idol around in their pocket and then give it to people in payment of a tax. The whole point of the, the Caesar was to constantly make the point to those that the Romans had subjugated, that they were under the absolute ruler of the man whose face is on that coin. Now give it to me in a tax. Is it possible that for the very people who are making the religious argument, that they were actually most angry that it cost them a day's wage? There's no concern for the glory of God who alone is God but only a concern for greed to keep cash. I want you to hear what I'm actually asking. My point is not to deny any arguments of a religious exemption. I think that they almost have one here. They're so close. Part of the value of our faith in the culture is to speak the truth in the face of injustice, in the face of persecution, in the face of the putting down of even religious liberties. Speak the truth. The point is this. Let us carefully consider who we are in this passage. Is it possible that when the Holy Spirit examines our hearts this morning, we may find ourselves to be the ones who are in need of repentance, of hypocrisy? Is it possible? And let the gracious Spirit, who sees accurately, we don't even see ourselves accurately. You may be feeling guilt and shame, and you, you shouldn't this morning. And you need the comfort of the Spirit to say, no, no. You've walked in, in a reasonableness in your faith. And you've walked in your reasonableness in the pursuit of truth. Let the Spirit do His work to apply the words of the Savior 
to your heart this morning. And may we be brought to repentance and joy and freedom in Christ. And so Jesus then, after the question, he turns to a coin. Look at it with me. In the beginning of verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he then answered them. Their hypocrisy. Jesus' interactions are, are so unique depending on the nature of the one who comes to him. His interactions are never uniform. You're never quite sure what Jesus is going to do. You even get the impression that the disciples are taken back over and over. They think they got Jesus figured out, and then he responds like this, and he literally calls these guys hypocrites. Now, just a little while ago, when people wanted to come to Jesus with questions and affirmation and blessing, he said, let the children come to me. He tells a woman who reached out to him for healing, step forward. I have a confrontation for you. I have a gift of faith to give to you, to increase in you. He calls the masses to come and hear him teach. He's literally doing that right now. And then this group comes to him and he says, hypocrites, hypocrites. Each of these, they come to him with a faith the size of a mustard seed. And he says, come. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians They come to him in pride and self-righteousness, and he rebukes them. Do you see the difference? Come to him, even with the faith of a mustard seed. Come to him and listen. And every single time in the book of Mark, if you've been listening, if you've been reading, he increases their faith. He takes their faith and he blows it up. And he grows it and he makes it fruitful for them. His question isn't first an answer. He asked them this question, why put me to the test? He just hasn't talked like this anywhere else. He, he, he knows they know the truth. He knows they know the answer to the question and what really the trap that they're trying to set for him. But he also knows that they haven't humbled themselves before the Lord of heaven in faith. For them, the truth is still a tool to be manipulated for the sake of their own power not an authority of God to be received with faith. What is the truth? Is it a tool for our manipulation, for our purposes, or is the truth revelation to be received from the mouth of the Lord, humbled under and applied with faith-filled wisdom? Bring me a denarius, he says. I love this. Again, he doesn't answer the question that. I want to look at it. Let's see what you see when you look at a denarius. Jesus' lordship and authority over those, even those who are trying to trap him, is being manifest. The way that Mark presents Jesus is as one who is in absolute command all the way through his last breath. Absolute command and authority. As if his authority might come from heaven. Now, it's interesting. He says, bring me a coin. Why didn't he reach in his pocket? He didn't have a coin. He didn't have one. He didn't have one of those idolatrous coins. They did. (laughs) That's hilarious. He got them. He doesn't even have to say anything else. He'd say, oh, you have one of those idolatrous coins? I'll just sit down over here. Let you tell me about it. Notice who has the blasphemous coin. This little interaction records for us so much 
nuance, so much irony. Don't miss the opportunity to just step back with the Gospel of Mark this week. Spend some time, read this over and over, and just enjoy. Man, Spirit, you're good. You're a good author. I love your words. Besides loving your word, enjoy. The Spirit has inspired a truly remarkable text. And then he asks this, look at it. They brought him one. He said to them, verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? He's going to force them to give their own answer. There's an image on the coin, and underneath of the image of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, it says, Tiberius Caesar Divi, Augusti Filius Augustus, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Jesus, the Son of God, is being asked what in the world to do with a coin inscribed with an idolatrous claim that the emperor himself is the Son of God. It shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' response is, Give it back! (laughs) I don't even have one on me. I'll find one for just a couple seconds and get rid of it right away. On the back it says Pontifex Maximus high priests. Again, Jesus will show by the work of the gospel that he's greater than Caesar. He's the true high priest. He's the one who brings people from all the nations. Oh, that massive empire of Rome. How about every corner of the earth? And I'm going to take people and I'm going to bring them reconciled to the God who made them. Pontifex Maximus, keep your not a surprise. It's interesting that we have the words in God we trust on our own coins. I think it's probably better than Pontifex Maximus underneath of Abraham Lincoln or something. But don't we treat some people like that? As if they would be the ones that would mediate and reconcile us to peace and goodness in the land? It's what we do with our coins that bear out the measure of the truth of the phrase, in God we trust, is our hope that we can obtain for ourselves, by means of that coin, worldly wealth? Or do we leverage our wealth in such a way as to say, the Lord alone is my eternal hope. He has provided for me in this world. And by means even of this coin, the Lord has provided, and so we give him thanks. Is that your disposition when you see that direct deposit show up in your checking account? The Lord has provided. Praise be to God. He's provided for me more than that. Oh, he's, he's provided for me an eternal inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and so I am free to leverage all of what he has managed to show up in that account, all the wealth of this world for his glory, to make his gospel known, and to care for my needs, the needs of my households, and the households around me. Praise be to God. I think the answer is no for me. It's no for us. Maybe we should ask one another, can we find an inscription on a coin and let our souls be examined there? Jesus gives an answer. 
And his answer is profound. His answer, I hope you enjoy Jesus' wisdom here. I hope you see that Jesus is wise like Solomon, that he splits this coin and this question in two. Whose likeness, he says, is in the inscription? They say Caesar's, and Jesus said to him, this is his answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They got the point, and they marveled. There's a principle in Jesus' answer that has brought guidance to the church in its relationship with the government and with culture for 2,000 years. There is something that is profound as I was reflecting on this. Jesus, wise like Solomon. But Solomon sat on a throne of judgment, thought to himself, and gave this division of whose baby this was, if you're familiar with the story. Jesus is being brought before authorities, not in a position of great power, but in in the position of the one who is being judged. And he's brought before the authorities and he exercises wisdom that's greater than Solomon, back to back to back. Jesus is greater than than Caesar. Jesus Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus's authority is from heaven There are four things that I think should be observed in Jesus' short little sentence. The first is this. First, Caesar, those who occupy the present seat of authority, have a right to possessions in this world. There are things in this world that belong to Caesar. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, give to Caesar what belongs what? To Caesar. That there are things that belong to the sphere of, of governing authorities. And there has been much reflection on this throughout Christian history, much helpful reflection. Even in our own scriptures, we have this reflection. And I would give them to you, write them in the margin so you can do that reflection together, perhaps at community group or your meal table this afternoon or before the Lord in prayer in the morning. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. And 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Romans 13, 1 through 7, and Peter 2, 13 through 17 explains so much more on these spheres of governing authorities. But second, even the one who submits to the authority of the Lord is responsible to render appropriate things to governing authorities. See, that was the rub. Man, we're God's people. He made all things and he elected us. Who's Rome? Who's Rome? We, we puff ourselves up with that same sort of language to this day. What is Washington? Well, Washington is a place to whom the authority of the Lord, those who submit to the authority of the Lord, are responsible to re- render appropriate, quote, things to the governing authority. Evidently, Jesus thought that one 365th, that is one day's wage, in the form of an idolatrous silver coin was not too much for Jesus to give. All right? Third, the authority of Jesus, uh, of Caesar, is not absolute. There remain things that belong to God. Do you see it? The things belong to Caesar. But render to God the things that belong to God. So there are things that do not belong to Caesar. This is where Jesus' answer gets really interesting. 
We've established that the image of Caesar is found on a coin, a tiny little silver coin that fits in a pocket. But what about the image of God? Is it not stamped as an imprint on the human soul, our very being and existence? You see, the coin gives the governing authority insofar as they are governing in this world. But you, you belong to God. You belong to God. Now, where are you going to put that? How do you give that? Finally, I think the fourth thing that Jesus has for us in the statement, it's just sitting there waiting for us to like say, yeah, that's true, even though it doesn't unpack everything. Jesus makes this pronouncement with, with such wisdom that he shows himself to be the truth, the, the true authority over all things. I want you to see this. Everybody marveled. Why do you give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Why? Well, because he's Caesar and it's his. No, because the Lord Jesus, the true son of God, told you to. That's why. Do you see it? Who's the authority? There's not two authorities. There's one and his name is Jesus. And his authority is from heaven. And he said, I want you guys to give some stuff to Caesar. And I want, to give you, I want you to give yourselves to the Lord God. Because I'm the authority and I said so. What is due to God? All things. All things. Including our obedience to his command for how we respect governing authorities and all of common grace that comes in the midst of it. Why do we do anything we do? Because it's due them. No. We do it because it's due the Lord. There's so much in here. So much to be humbled by in this short little passage. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're here, I want you to know this. The whole world belongs to the Lord. Today, you have been called as a bearer of the image of God to give what is due him. You may not believe today, but what is true is you are due him. The call this morning is to submit him yourself to him by faith. The problem of sin is that we've said for so long, on my own I can live. To my own end and for my own purposes and by my own means. We cling to our lives as though they're under our own authority. And increasingly in our day, we look to government to provide for rescue and hope and some perfection in this world. If only I can be great and organize with others who would agree with me, we can redeem ourselves. But friend, you have an image. That image belongs to no, not one political party. It belongs to the Lord. The call this morning for you is to repent of idolatry. The call to everyone is to repent, just like John the Baptist called, to repent of idolatry and then to trust in the forgiveness of the Lord, the grace of the Lord. You'll never give him what's due him. He is due all things. And I've already given too much away other places. 
What I need is grace. What you need is grace received by faith. If you're a Christian, you know this already. You know that it's the same thing, isn't it? We know that we're not our own, but belong body and soul to the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. We examine ourselves, and this sermon's long. (laughs) And we've had a long time just in these moments together to examine ourselves, and we find ourselves lacking. I mean, I'm all over this passage, and if there's anywhere that I'm like, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves identifying with hypocrisy in our hearts. We shouldn't be surprised to find pride mixed in our motivations, even when we're doing the righteous thing. We're fickle at best and sinners by nature. That's what we are. You're, you're a Christian. You know it. But it is the wisdom of the Lord to send the Holy One, Jesus Christ, not only to reveal our self-righteousness and to reveal our sin and hypocrisy, but also to forgive and transform our hearts. Friends, it would be easy to leave this morning with a great weight and say, I'm going to overestimate how much I pay in taxes. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do fine math, right? But I got a heart problem that's going to go on way beyond April 15th. And you know what it needs? needs grace. It needs to be repented of, brought before the Lord. Say, examine me. Apply your grace of forgiveness upon me. Do a work of transformation in me. Give me a greater desire for the one who made me. By the work of Jesus on the cross, we are being remade in an image. As we'll see in next week's passage and celebrate on Easter, it's by his resurrection that we live and hope in an eternal, sanctified, glorious life. Heavenly Father, you've spoken by the Son. Man, there's just not a word. There's like a letter in there. It's not just worth saying, yeah, you're right, Father. We would do well to listen to this one. We would do well to not only listen, but to marvel. To stand there with our chin hanging open. Saying, well, what did he say? What does that mean? Work that in me. Lord, I pray that we would become so enamored by the wise one that we could speak the truth and look humble when we do it. Because we have been so placed under the wisdom that we proclaim. It belongs to the authority of heaven, not to ourselves. It doesn't come from us when we share in the world the truth of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do this work in our hearts. You would do this work in our church. And you would do this work in our conversations where we go, in our lives, in the way that we walk, root out hypocrisy and give us boldness to walk as a people forgiven and truly free in Christ. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for all of these things all things in the name of that great wise master and redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.